0: adventurers thank you so much for lending your ears to our expedition through storytelling mysteries if you enjoy our podcast stories or just want to support us and help us make a dream come true please go to patreon.com slash moco press and consider becoming a supporter of our work thanks hello and welcome i'm robin childs
1: i'm Corey childs and i'm matt parker
0: Together we form the MoCo Expedition, three good friends exploring the mysteries of storytelling craft. Sometimes on your journey as a writer, you encounter questions that sit in the back of your mind and seem to have no clear answer. In the MoCo Expedition chat episodes, we'll be unraveling some of the different storytelling conundrums that we've encountered. Long unanswered questions will be unearthed, observations revealed, and theories discovered. Or debunked, as the case may be. In this episode, what starts out as a discussion on how to make believable one-shot characters transitions into how to productively deal with criticism. So grab your writing notebook, put on your best adventurer's cap, and welcome to the MoCo Expedition. So the topic today is one that um, I'm personally trying to figure out, and instead sort of struggling with as a writer, so I thought that I would bring it to the most brilliant writing minds that I know of, that I talk to on a regular basis, and see if you guys had any thoughts, suggestions, and maybe we can, through discussion, find some solutions and tricks. So the issue, every, uh, every end of chapter for the past four or five Chapters now, I think I've done a feedback day and I've asked readers to give me their thoughts, what they liked, what they didn't, of that chapter. And for two chapters in a row, I've had the feedback come back that uh, some of my one shot characters are just landing uh, either so bland that a, cl- a group of them all seem like the same entity and they don't even need to be, you know, individuals, or each one has a very one-note feeling, and so I'm I'm kind of conflicted because on the one hand, um, part of me is wondering, you know, is is it necessary to flesh out a one-shot character to the point where they might overshadow the main cast? Um, if it is necessary, then how do you effectively create uh, characterization and interest and Likability or interest or relatability in a character that you have so little screen time with, and I guess I just want to hear your thoughts and on on maybe some tips and tricks on that or examples of good one shot characters and why they were good or that kind of thing. So I've rambled on and introducing my topic. There you go. (laughs) Well, in your
2: work, what Mm -hmm. give us an example of a of a one shot character that they didn't like.
1: Yeah, okay. some specificity. So there's, what did There's what two
0: sets. They like? um, there's the chapter where um, Kali is sort of wrestling with her decision to leave or not. And the uh, villagers, a good portion of the council, has basically decided that in order for their safety, they have to preemptively um, either c- kill um, Mijitama and Jiro. So they can't bring other people into the area or uh, that they have to sort of make a show of power to keep Kali there. It's a mixture of that. Um, And the complaint was that the majority of the villagers all sort of felt like one single entity. And the majority of the council all felt like one single entity. So that's one example. Um, So I tried to step up characterization of the one-shot characters in the next chapter that I did. Uh, because I had four, the four keepers. And the methodology I used for that was that I assigned each one of them one of the humors. So choleric and phlegmatic and melancholic and uh, sanguine. And tried to give them personality that way. Figuring that maybe that would be a recognizable shorthand. Um, but again, I'm getting this feedback that they're very one-note. They're very predictable. Um, and as a result, they're boring. So... Those are the examples.
2: Well, I'll admit that those villagers, even the council, didn't strike me as being boring because – and this is going to sound terrible, but then I'll explain what I mean.
0: Okay, I didn't, I'm bracing I, myself.
2: I didn't expect them to be interesting
0: mm-hmm.
2: in that they're there and they provide a, a tone and a feeling, but I didn't feel like the story – lacked anything because they weren't all fully fleshed out people. We had the leaders of the two camps in the, you know, the head saying, yep, we got to murder these people. And the wanderer saying, that's kind of awful. And so that, that gave the arguments and the council, I got the feeling that they were, very under the sway of the one leader, um, whose name is escaping me at the moment. It's okay. Um, that they were very much under his sway, that, they, that their blandness indicated to me that they were not great political entities in their own right, and that they were going along with him. And so I read that as being textual. These guys aren't important because they are so much under his thumb.
1: I'll take it a step beyond that. Um- I, I totally agree with you when you say, you know, I didn't really expect them to be fully fleshed out, and here's why. The story's not about them. Um, yeah. So, ultimately, I think they delivered exactly what they needed to do, and when people said that, you know, the villagers were a little one-note, I think you took that to heart. You you ended up stepping up your game, and you you did the thing with the uh, four humors, the, the four Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with the, with the keepers, and I thought it worked pretty effectively. If they thought that it was kind of one-note, I mean... I guess it was a little predictable and I do have some advice for that but overall I don't think you messed up anyway in, in any sort of way it's
0: Well I guess that's sort of that's why I'm on the fence about this is is, is it is it is, is a narrative in which characters are just all of them are leap off the page feel like real people um in, intrinsically better than ones where there clearly are characters that are meant to fade into the background so that the main characters themselves shine or is it the responsibility of the writer to just make their main characters shine regardless and step everybody up to that level of of strong characterization
1: i think it depends um the way i look at this is i'll look at it uh, from a television perspective and that's uh if if you're on tv you have your primary cast, they're going to be the people you're following lead to week, and your one-shot characters are going to be your guest stars. And since the guest star is usually a foil to one or more of your regular characters then they're presenting or embodying your problem or whatever, uh, you want them to be as strong, at least in that single episode, as the one or two main characters that they're playing off of. So uh, let's go with uh, Firefly. How about and you've got the uh, character of saffron who who uh, seduces slash uh, uh, coyly ingratiates, ingratiates herself into the uh, firefly crew and ultimately turns out to be I guess a villain um, a very very good one shot character and I think uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say my piece of advice that I think will, will work with this is the reason why she works is she subverts the expectation of what her character will be. And uh, it, again, it depends on how much you're going to use the character in your story. Are the keepers a foil for Zero? I think they are. And as a result, you can kind of play with that dynamic. But their screen time, how much screen time they have, really limits how well you can subvert the character expectation. Uh, my recommendation with a one shot character is to start with a stereotype, but then make them have one thing out of place. Um, you know, if you've got Mousy Librarian, the. Oh, and enjoys monster truck rallies. You know, that sort of thing. So they they have one little thing that that is just off-kilter a bit so that people get a shorthand for what their character is usually like, but they're not predictable and they feel more real because they have one contradiction.
0: So it's a contradicting element that you think brings... I, I think that
1: helps. I mean, that's a great place to start with any sort of character, but I think if you don't have a lot of time to establish a character, that's a good shorthand.
0: And a shorthand is, is, I mean, ultimately it's shorthand has a purpose. I don't Absolutely. know, I feel you know. very just mixed up about, <laughs> about it. Mean? Um, but I, I do feel like there is a purpose to shorthand and it's, it's entirely there so that we can, as an audience, almost like a hand sign where we, we know, Oh, okay you know I need to get something general out of this but I'm not here to see this person reflect some theme or you know any the same way that if we see something that's brightly colored on a screen we know visually shorthand oh I should probably pay attention to that but if it's something that's specifically the same color tones as the rest of the background our brains go that's probably not very important and there's a purpose for that shorthand
1: I guess in the terms of the keepers, and I guess even the villagers, did you do that? The head villager is important to the story, but he kind of blends in with the rest of the villagers. The head keepers are really important to the story, but visually they look like every other Shadow Monk we've met, including Jiro. Well, I wanted them to have a feeling
0: of uh, belonging to their organization. Sure. If a design or a characteristic is, is completely out of place, it's hard to say, oh yeah, I can totally see how these people are all part of a cultural societal organization.
1: No, no, I'm not. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying that maybe uh, even something a little more. Like they all have the exact same hairstyle, and I know that's a thing for them, but mm-hmm. I, I, I think there are ways you can do it. You can kind of break up that shorthand and give a little more character in just the design. Um, like I said, they're not. The character designs aren't bad. I like the different size. I like how they're immediately, especially if you go by silhouette. Uh, different from each other. Um, But again, I think you just need that one juxtaposition element if people are thinking they need these characters to be stronger.
2: Well, and I think that it's important to distinguish between visual similarity and sameness and blandness and narrative similarity, sameness and blandness. And so the question is really, are there... So rather than saying the question is really, there are two different things to address since you are in a visual medium, is the complaint that they all look the same and it's hard to tell apart, or is the the complaint that they serve no purpose and therefore they're hard to tell apart?
0: Um, the complaint with the villagers was both, and so I tried to address that by inc- improving the character designs uh, for the keepers. Um, well, and,
2: and I think that doing one helps with the whole situation cuz they both contribute to it. Um the keepers were hampered by the fact that they all have uh, like Cory said they're all dressed very similarly. They're all similarly they all have similar skin tone, they all have similar haircuts.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Or I can't remember if they all have the same haircut, but they're Th- they're pretty are, much, yeah. They are of a race that is that tends towards similarity and they are all part of a religious order that has them dressing similarly I
0: thought about having them all dressed differently but then like you don't see priests dressed radically differently from each other in like a catholic they all dress the same because they're in a uniform except
2: they're not based on rank and that's something that you could consider is that if you go to a I don't know popapalooza you're going to see priests in black cassocks, but as you go up from priest to archbishop to bishop to pope, or to cardinal to pope, the uniform changes. Mm-hmm. And so a priest wears, you know, the black cassock, even on formal occasions. But you know, cardinals wear red. The pope wears white. I think bishops wear bishops and archbishops wear purple. And it's still a cassock and some stuff you throw on a cassock, um, but – and you start to get into – with, like, bishops, you get into the big um, uh, uh, staves and pectoral crosses and rings. And so part of what you could consider in looking at the next time you have something like that – because I get the feeling we're going to see uh, other religious orders pop up. Mm Mm-hmm consider the hierarchy or the different ecclesiastical offices or functions that those people could inhabit and give them something to signify it.
0: Yeah,
1: on this one, the thing... Oh, go on, Robin.
0: No, I was just... I, I hadn't considered introducing power dynamics.
2: And for the... For that order... It might be that they're just the four heads, and that makes sense internally to that order. Yeah. But for other orders, I think a hierarchical nature, or even if it's this is the five person council, well, why are they there? What do they represent? Is one of them the treasurer? Is one of them, um, you know, sh- could one have a stole? and one have a hat, and one have a, you know, little things that have a meaning that also serve secondarily to go, oh, well, that's the one in the hat, so yeah. we at least know who we're talking about.
1: Different well, pendants and, might denote different uh, offices, things like that.
0: Well, and different roles also indicate different concerns, because a treasurer right. is going to be worried about how much it's going to cost, whatever it is that they're discussing, in ways that a vice president might not be.
1: If you want to characterize them that way, too. I mean, right. I've been in an organization with a treasurer, and not all treasurers are good. So you can you can definitely counter-characterize that way, too. Right. Um, but they,
2: it, it gives them a purpose, yes. a narrative purpose as well as a visual distinction. And maybe the treasurer is the treasurer because they missed the meeting where they were deciding who had to be treasurer. Yeah. But they still have a concern, and they still have you know, put, it's not going to be a dollar sign on them, but <laughs> churches and religions love hierarchies and love something to show distinction. I think about um, Avatar. That was the where way, I was going next, yeah. The way that we knew who the head of the airbending order was was because he had different robes.
1: Yeah, Azzo, who uh, trains... Uh... Eng uh, has uh, specifically a different, I think uh, he has a different rosary and uh, robe pattern from the other monks, right. and the monk that is specifically saying, oh no, all of the councils agreed that you can't be so close to, the kid will be the avatar, and he has to follow a more traditional path, he is specifically character designed to look like the other monks. He is speaking for the Order as a whole, whereas uh, Yatso has a character and therefore is much more distinct. So I think that's important, too.
0: Well, and I guess that's... Where does that that character transit You know, collective-to-character transition happen? Because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Avatar still, the uh, episode where Aang goes to the Fire Lord... or the Fire Temple to talk with... Um, the previous Avatar for the first time. And there's an entire order of Fire Monks that all wear the same outfit, except one is still loyal to the Avatar and the others aren't. And so he's clearly a clearly a character, but he's also clearly part of the collective still.
1: But he had a different... I thought he had a different uniform too because specifically he was still in training. Well,
2: but... And again, more than that, we can tell that he's different because he's the one that gets five minutes of screen time.
1: Um. Yeah. G- yeah, g- Kind of coming off of that, uh, Robin, you confessed to me that you only named one of the keepers.
0: I did only name one of the keepers. And
1: that's the one that the has the longest conversation with Dream Eater, right?
0: Um, no, they all have pretty equal.
1: The guy who gets eaten last.
0: He is the one that gets eaten last. That,
1: that's he, true. he shares an entire extra scene with Dream Eater that nobody else does. That's true. That's the guy. That's the guy who needs to be distinct. Sorry.
0: Well, I just, I just, I, I tried to make them distinct. I felt for me you, no, they no, no, were well, distinct, but I didn't want to make them I, I, over, no. overbearing. Like I, I'm really concerned about the about making characters that, that, like I don't, oh, I don't know. What, well, well, like, what are I you worried want, about? What? Are
1: they gonna outshine your main cast?
0: I don't know. That's I don't think they that. will. I, I, part of me is is concerned that that's an issue. Another part of me thinks, well then. Is that such a bad thing to have like this one character that people are like? Man, I wish I knew more about this person I'll never see again. Like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing.
2: Well, but here's it's a one, it's a good thing. And two, the other part is those monks being the same served a textual purpose. It told us about the order. It told us, even if it wasn't what you intended, that. The hierarchy terminates in these four dudes, that there isn't a lot of distinction. And it's okay if some characters end up being kind of samey. It, it's, I would look at it this way going forward. is If, you're gonna, if you come across a section where you're doing a lot of people looking the same, ask yourself if that sameness serves a purpose, like identifying them as a religious order or whether or not it's it's you not distinguishing it enough. I felt like in that section we got enough that we knew, yeah, these guys had all been in this order since they were kids, so they're going to be very similar. But they were still different enough in how they reacted that we got that there were differences. But you're always going to have some difficult situations where there is not going to be, a lot of visual distinctiveness because they're in the military and there's a uniform or because they're in the priesthood and there's a uniform. So it's okay if sometimes that happens.
0: I guess in those cases how do you create because the the complaint has not been that the, the visual sameness. The complaint has been the personality sameness.
1: Well, like I said, I think you definitely improved it from the villagers to the keepers. The villagers, again, you kind of just went with a generic angry mob sort of vibe, and you had one guy who was the voice of that. With the keepers, you specifically set out to have distinct personalities for each of them. That's great. I think the uh, negative here comes from the idea that those four uh, personality types are stereotypes. They've been played, they've been seen before. It's an improvement but it's still something that's uh, very, very recognizable instantly by anybody who has any sort of uh, movie-watching, film, uh, TV-watching, or even book-reading experience. Uh, the characters are very, very uh, predictable in that way. So again, like I say, um, if you want somebody to be more memorable... If you don't want them to be memorable, then that's great. Leave it just like that, and that can serve a purpose. If you do want them to be more memorable... I say you give one more iconoclastic tendencies to the point where uh, they definitely
0: stand out from the crowd is there a shorthand way to do that? Well, a-
1: yeah, the uniform. Because you, you you were telling me So you're me just that-
0: saying purely visual. No, you're no, 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 no. That's just a place to
1: start. Entirely. That the, the 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 visuals is just a place to start. Um, when you're starting with these characters, you've got the four keepers, and you have one of them that's going to be a little more characterful and it's going to have a little more screen time than the others. The three of the other ones have visual distinctives, especially in the silhouette, but they wear the uniform. You are one guy with a little more character. Give him something a little different.
0: So you've... Right? You're suggesting, actually, if, if if there is a group entity, focus on a single single person to try and bring out. Or focus it, especially on if as,
1: you can uh, contrast on it with Focus on as many
2: people as you're going to narratively need.
1: Yes, yes. But, but definitely but, have a group you can contrast to so people can see the baseline and then understand that this person is different from the baseline in this way.
2: And as for visual versus narrative and personality... They inform one another. We automatically give, especially when we're reading it to ourselves, if a character is standing in the same uniform as everybody else, but his is disheveled and not tucked in and looks like he doesn't care, when he makes a little sarcastic aside, we're going to give it automatically more weight because we see, oh, we understand on an instinctual level here is someone who doesn't care much about what they're doing, or at least doesn't care much about the appearances, versus if someone makes the exact same comment but they're wearing the uniform and it's perfect. So the visual can inform the personality, so long as that visual is done in a way that can reflect some underlying tendency.
0: Okay. So we're kind of we're also talking a lot about uh, group versus individual. Where, when do you think it's right to make the choice between a group or an individual?
1: How do you mean choice?
0: I mean, so you're writing a segment and you need to get across some mood or point or idea or concept and you choose to do so with a character that is a one-shot character. Do you choose to do that with a one-shot character that is a single individual or do you choose to do that with a one-shot character that is part of a group? thus having a group of one-shots. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Um, what's the theme? You know what I mean? That, that's the initial question I ask myself. So if we're talking about um, the choice that Kali is making, and specifically that she's beholden to this group, I think it's important to show that there is a group. When it comes to, um, I guess, the conflict that Jiro is having um, in, in the chapter with the Keepers, we're talking about authority. An authority can be group-driven uh, driven, or it can be derived from a single individual. So in that one, you get to choose. But the first thing I would do is look at the theme and see which is more appropriate, uh, a group or uh, an individual. And then from there, you can kind of decide whether or not you want to uh, break that trend. Or if you want to, uh, whichever one you think works best, I guess.
2: Right. There's never going to be a universal yeah. answer of should I do it with a person or should I do it with a group? It depends on do you want to convey it as one person's opinion or do you want to convey that it's a, a gr- the group's opinion? Because if there had been one villager that came quietly to the protagonists and said, hey, sorry, we're about to kill you. This is kind of douchey. That gives a very different feeling than if ten villagers came up and said And one of them said, hey, sorry, we're doing this. It's kind of douchey. One of them says, oh, well, there are some good people here. Some people feel bad. One says, maybe there is an undercurrent of support here for them that the leader doesn't realize and that there may not be universal contentment with this whole murder thing. Yeah. So it's it's very much your intent on what you want to portray.
1: Are you trying to make it a... uh... Are you trying to portray the opinion of your one-shot character as a societal opinion or the opinion of one individual?
0: Well, it does, I mean, that does depend on the theme. I'm just, I'm trying Mm -hmm. to suss out, like, the series of decisions to make when sitting down to do something. I
1: don't have a magical bullet for this. I'm just always going to go by feel, but again, (laughs) if you want a step-by-step process, I guess as we've just outlined is, one, study your theme and decide whether or not it's a group-oriented theme or an individual-oriented theme. That's one. And then, two, decide whether or not you want your one-shot character to be the voice of a group or the voice of merely him or herself. That would be my process. If I had a process, which I don't.
0: You're not as a structure...
1: No, I'm I'm design. really not. <laughs>
2: but even even on a structure thing, this is one of those things where it really just is going to come down to a case-by-case basis. Because there's going to be time when either one could... When either one could be correct. And... So it it just... It has to come down to, to a certain extent, you trusting your ability to know... Whether it needs to be a group or it needs to be a person. And getting in that moment and thinking, what do I want to say? How broadly do I want it to be said? How supported should it be? And, and trust your gut.
0: I feel like I'm making a really huge deal out of this. And both of you are kind of like, it's not really is well, a problem. I, mean, is.
1: <laughs> I, I understand it. You've gotten feedback twice in a row. This would be over the course of, what, Six months. So basically, you've gotten a criticism over the course of half a year saying that you, or you could take it as, I don't think it's saying this, but you could take it as you have not improved in this aspect that you've been specifically working on. And I get how that can be uh, nerve-wracking. I, I guess uh, from my perspective, though, um, again, does it fulfill the purpose? You're definitely getting better at it every chapter, and this is a part of that process. So I don't i don't think... Uh, well, it is a kind of a big deal, and I can see why, why you would feel that way. So I, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I see why you feel that it is a big deal. Don't worry about feeling like it is a big deal.
2: Well, on the other side of it, I think it's important to remember that every well-thought-out criticism is valid in that it represents what someone who takes the time and effort to write something to you, is observing. Not every suggestion requires you to completely revamp how you do something. There are times when you are critiqued and it is sufficient to say, okay, I've had this before, so now that I am doing something again in a similar situation let me just keep this in the back of my mind you don't need to completely change how you do everything or let it obs- or let it make you obsess over it
0: i eh, mean not obsessing over something that's a concept
2: just keep it in the back of your mind and take a look at it afterwards and see what you think
0: i guess i just don't know what think i don't i i am disagreeing with myself constantly and can't come to an opinion at all so i guess maybe i just need to think about it more
1: well here's another thought um every time we do one of these writing prompts for an episode, that's a one-shot character, or several one-shot characters. Um, When we did the one last week where I asked you guys to make three separate characters all going to a giant robot college for different reasons, what process did you come up with to distinguish each of those characters from each other? Those are all one-shots.
0: Yeah, I usually just pick a single aspect of a personality and then just focus on that, because I feel like there's not enough I guess... (sighs) I am afraid of of how much depth to put into a character because I feel like my strength is when I actually focus on a character but they're, making a character is a months and months long task for me when they're in depth and I rely on shorthand so I don't have to put in months and months and months into a character that we're only going to see for three pages so I, f- I guess I feel like if I try and I'm trying to figure out a technique that is a shorthand technique that produces a character that at least has the illusion of depth when there isn't any. Because I can't afford to give them full depth because it would mean that I would no longer produce anything. I would spend all my time making background characters. Okay,
1: so here's
2: here's the other question. Was it the same guy that made the complaint both times?
0: I, I honestly don't remember. I think it were different people.
2: Was it one
0: person each time? Uh, No, I think it was reinforced by a couple people.
2: Okay. Was it a majority of your commenters? (laughs) No. (laughs) Then there's a certain amount where you just kind of have to say, thank you for your valuable input. I will try harder and move on because... (laughs) It's one thing if everybody says, hey, when you draw your hands that way, it looks like sausages on a ham loaf. Okay, if and I'm not saying that's something you do. But if 80% of your readers when you did this survey were responding with variations of sausage on a ham loaf, okay, maybe I need to draw my hands a little bit differently. If you get a couple of people making that complaint each time, eh... Consider it, but don't let it cripple you. Go on with what you're doing, because to a certain extent, they've also kept reading this long.
0: Yeah, I just, I don't want to get complacent, you know? And if a comment comes up enough times, and I guess twice on the same issue is, for me, enough times... It's right. once if i'm really being honest any any complaint ever is enough time for me because i'm neurotic and insecure but i right. just, i do want to get better i don't i don't know maybe i just want to be lazy about it and i'm just sucking
2: i i think I, that I, there's there is the perfectly valid idea i don't want to be complacent but then there is the opposite of i want to worry about complacency so much that it destroys me Neither one of them is better.
1: Yeah. Um from my perspective on this one, I feel like uh I I feel like the initial premise of the idea that you mentioned is is a little off-kilter. When you said, "I want to create these side characters with this illusion of depth." I I for me at least that's the wrong approach. Because it's still a world, and I know it feels like it takes forever to create a fully fleshed out character, but it sounds to me like a better approach might be, instead of, I want to create these characters quickly that have an illusion of death, I think it would be more useful to create characters with actual depth in a reasonable time frame.
0: Yeah and that's the part I don't know how to do. Oh, okay, okay. I guess that's, that's but, what but I But that's
1: not do what you asked us means. to help you with. So,
0: Ugh, well, I suck at phrasing No, no, questions. it's all right. <laughs> I'm I'm just
1: trying to confirm that that's the idea we're trying to convey. Yeah, um, I guess
0: fundamentally that's the issue is is I don't I don't know how to do what I need to do in a in a brief amount of time in a, in a short enough amount of time to do the work I want to do. Right. Um so I guess part of me is trying to figure out the reason the fight comes up is because the the part that wants to constantly strive to be better is like, we've got to get on this. And then the part that's like, we have a deadline goes, you have got to get off this train. And as a result, I'm just fighting with myself and driving not myself doing into sort of a obsessive pit of despair. Hmm. The pit of despair.
1: I guess um, from, from my perspective, there is uh, practice. You know what I mean? If you can find ways to practice coming up with one-shot characters in an environment that is not restricted by deadline, you'll get better as you go. And, frankly, I think you are getting practice by doing them in your comic yeah. as well. So...
0: I mean, you're right. We pretty much have to do that every time we do a prompt. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you're getting practice.
0: Yeah. Enough. <laughs> So are there any techniques that you guys use? What do you guys do when you have to get? Well,
2: Honestly, I, I think a character. what you've described is what we do. If you need a background character, it's okay, quick. What is a trait? What, what, what's their purpose? So what do I need them to do? What are traits that I can quickly throw on to that? What's kind of an archetype that I can put them in? And is there one quirk or counter counter trait that I can give them? That's exactly it. That's what we do.
0: I guess the quirk part is something I have not tried. When you consider well, quirkiness, what, are you, what do you well, guys think about?
2: A rule that I heard from, I think it was Neil Gaiman, on an interview and a podcast, was that he likes to do characters with three things that all make sense for the character, and then one thing that's different. So I think that for a background character doing a a more compressed version of that, come up with, you know, two things that fit the archetype that you're doing, and then one, even a little thing that just sets them apart. You know, and that little thing, again, in a visual medium, that little thing can be a jaunty chapeau that, that kind of sticks out or it can be a stutter or a habit of rubbing their hands together or scratching the back of their neck. Something that just puts them against where they should be gives them this, uh, an appearance of depth.
1: Alternately, uh, look at your main characters. What makes uh, Tama deep? What makes Mija deep? What makes Paku deep? Where's their depth coming from?
0: I'd say a, their contradictions, I guess, in peace, which is sort of what you guys are talking about, but also just how everything they do is informed by their pasts and the environments that they come from and the little hypocrisies that each one of them has. Mm-hmm. So hypocrisy is a big <laughs> a big part of it, because everybody, everybody has a tendency to... Uh, it's one of those we hate the things in others that we... Are most guilty of ourselves,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we're we're good in some areas. we aware we're aware of a particular value being applicable, but as soon as you get outside of uh, conscious awareness, we all have a tendency to uh, fail. Well, contradiction in the areas is that we character,
1: huh? Contradiction is character. Mm-hmm. Um, you just I mean, if you if we took a look at any given stereotype and we just had them be perfectly that stereotype that isn't a character. So I, I guess, yeah, like we were saying with the main characters, if you, they have their different contradictions, well, add a little contradiction to your side characters. Your one-shots. Um, do you have any other advice, Matt?
2: No, I think I think that's kind of the, the heart of it, is that little contradiction, those little standout details give us the feeling that this is a person who has their own inner life. And that's ultimately what you mean when you say complexity, when you're going through it, is this person seems like they could be rocking their own story, and they just need to pop in and say, hey, Misha, your, your dress is ugly. You know, whatever.
0: <laughs> um,
2: and
0: then they go back to doing
2: their own And okay. then they go back to their own story. And even though you're never going to tell the story of random peasant who says Misha's dress is ugly. Unless you are really desperately bored, um, that's created this idea that there are other stories going on around you. And I think all ulti- you know, it's the Skyrim effect. Some of my favorite moments in Skyrim are when I get to a town and I realize that, oh, they're just kind of doing their own thing, whether or not the dragonborn is rolling by. Like one time when I had to go to a town to learn blacksmithing from a dude only to be found only to find that he had, not scripted, not planned, been murdered by vampires. Right. So that's <laughs> a bummer, man. It is a bummer. That's life. <laughs> so, one, cre- uh, give them a little quirk that makes it, a little contradiction that makes it seem like they're doing their own thing, and you'll have that feeling of depth. And two, never be afraid to have random characters murdered by vampires.
0: Okay. I think I can do that last one. That seems like a really concrete, easy to follow.
1: <laughs> Murdered by vampires. Murdered by vampires. Murder them but with vampires. That, with that makes them section. deep immediately. Murdered
0: by vampires. That's
1: the, that's the key. <laughs> okay, problem solved. Um, uh, kind of Coming off what we were saying earlier about how each of them has a different, uh, m- might have a different office or an emblem of office that denotes what their role of uh, the role is. Um, when you're thinking maybe with this one shot and how do they contribute to drama, what do they want? What's their motive? Um, we we meet the keepers, right? Well, like okay, let's let's go back even further. So we have this elder in this village, and he's uh, trying to gain, uh, rob, rouse support to have these newcomers killed. What does he want?
0: um it depends on I did have different motives for them but mm-hmm. one of them is just flat out bigoted yeah um hates anyone that's a shadow monk or a lightbringer with a yeah. passion and believes they should be exterminated mm-hmm. um another one lost his son yeah to a lightbringer uh band and as a result sort of has a, a grief and vendetta and the uh third one perceives that this is creating a power imbalance and wants to maintain control. Mm -hmm. But even though I had those things in mind, that clearly didn't come across.
1: Right. So I guess, do they have a motive, and is that motive clearly stated? Um, I guess, from my perspective, in that situation, if I'm a monk and these light bringers come here, and this is the uh, motive that you ended up going with and stating, is that... uh, if they go away and they tell other Lightbringers where we are, our way of life is threatened. Mm-hmm. So that more than anything, they're acting out of fear. So it's, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I guess that's the motive that came across for all of them. And you just said three different motives for each of them that was completely different than what ended up being stated. Yeah, but collectively
0: so. they all boiled down to the same thing, is fear of something. Fear sure, of loss, sure. fear of something. Mm-hmm.
1: That is what they boil down to, but from the audience perspective, they boil down to one thing. You see what I mean? Like, yes, they all boil down to fear, but it's different. There's flavors of it. There's, um, a- again, what is your motive? And if I just say fear, that's not specific enough. The same way when I say I'm going to write a story about fear, that theme is not specific enough. What do you have to say about fear? What are you motivated by with fear? And, um, so, so let's move on to the keepers. You've got your four keepers. What are they motivated by? And they should all be different.
0: Yeah. And I Mm. guess I was so focused on trying to give them, uh... Character. Character that I, unlike the other ones, did not give any of them motive. So it's like I took one step forward and another one back.
1: So I guess that's the, uh, that's the other part of it. If you want another tip to it, is give them a motive and... Like I'm going to be perfectly honest. If you feel like you do not have time to characterize them well because it's so quick, have them say what their motive is. Just flat out. out and be like, hey, this is what I want. And uh, then it'll be clear, you know what I mean? The mm-hmm. audience knows where that guy's coming from.
0: Well, I guess in, in if an audience knows where a character is coming from, they can fill in the gaps themselves. Yeah,
1: exactly. Because drama's created when characters don't get what they want according to David Mammoth. and uh, in 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 that regard you need to know what the character wants in order to be mo- uh, to feel the drama of any scene that they're in.
0: yeah I suppose that's true.
1: So that would be my other one find out what they want and then make sure the audience knows exactly what they want. also vampire murder
2: also vampire, vampire murder,
1: murder if yeah. Worst case scenario. If things nothing go awry. else,
0: I will make sure to keep the vampire murder in, in, in mind in the future.
1: This uh conversation kind of took a left turn into how to take criticism. Do we wanna run yeah. with that? How do we, how to accept criticism? Fire. 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 <laughs> Ignore staunchly.
0: it is sort of strange for me because there's a lot of people that there's like people have so many different Opinions on criticism that I've heard. And a lot of people say, don't listen to anything. Um, if someone can't... It, the, or, or look at what they've done. If that person hasn't done what you can do or better, ignore them. Right. And I, the,
2: the Byron school?
0: I, I just disagree with that because the, the skill of critiquing is different than the skill of, of creating. They're not, they're not the same skill set. But the, the issue that comes up then is that you end up, well, you end up me, where everything is, is valid, and important, and key, and you get obsessive and cripple yourself.
1: Alright, so. alright, I gotta butt in. Why is it black and white? Right. That is exactly. On one side, we have you need to. If, if they haven't done, you know, an amazing comic that you admire, their criticism isn't worth anything, versus everything anybody says has to cut me to the quick. And uh, one of the biggest pieces of advice I got from my workplace about how to uh, grow as, as an employee and how to have a chance to add advancement was when you receive criticism, consider the source. Now, that doesn't mean. Dismiss it out of hand because someone is less experienced than you. but or, uh, just, it also doesn't mean automatically accepted
2: as valid bingo. because it was said by a person with a mouse.
1: Exactly. Um, and in actuality, what it is, is you have to understand that just like your characters, everybody in real life has a motive. And if you are able to clearly discern what their motive is, you have a much better chance of understanding what they are trying to do when they give you a piece of criticism. Are they genuinely help, trying to help you improve? Are they making an attack on your self-esteem? Are they um, genuinely concerned for the improvement of the story? Like,
0: there, there's the a million things. Hmm? I think in the case of Laylians, I don't need to question their motive because all of them are genuinely I... interested in improvement. I don't think there's anyone there that's trying to bring me down.
1: Wait, 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 wait.
0: <laughs> I just I don't want a Laylian listening to this to be like, hey, hey.
1: No, 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 no. I didn't say question the source. That is very different than consider the source. Oh, okay. Keep right. an open mind. Oh, Don't say, "Hmm, this is suspicious." Just say, "Okay, this came from this sort of person. What do I know about them? They like ley lines. If that is the only piece of information you have, you know what I mean? Then you need to uh, then you need to take that piece of criticism and understand that it could come from any sort of motive. If you know that it's somebody who frequently, uh, uh is involved in the process of helping you improve as a writer, if they're constantly commenting, if they've participated in critique days before, they have a little more weight to what they say. Mm -hmm. But part of that is just getting to know your fan base.
2: I'm completely willing to say, hey, you, Lelian, you know the one? You're a dick. That that guy? Everyone else? You're fine.
1: (laughs) No, no, no. The vast majority... I'm with Matt here. We, we, We have amazing, wonderful fans... I'm convinced we have terrible fan. Just one. No. Out there somewhere. Just
2: that one. Just that he one knows guy. know what he's doing. No.
1: <laughs> Stop <laughs> saying
0: mean things about my readership. No, no,
1: no, no. Not your readership. Just your reader, period. No. One. Nope. Not plurality.
0: You're not going to get any movement on this. <laughs> I'm with you guys. They're all jerks, Matt. Matt and, and Courier are jerks. Help. Don't, don't listen to them.
1: How very um, politically correct of you, Robin. I'm not
0: being politically correct. Uh, says, the,
2: says the dude who in our last podcast was like, Don't worry, Kansas. <laughs> I got you."
1: back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm a hypocrite. I admit it. See, it's the hypocrisies that make us. That, that's people. that's what bothers you. Mm-hmm. It's not the attacks on your fans. It's the hypocrisy.
0: No, I'm saying hypocrisy is what makes us unique characters. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. You've all right, there you go. The second half of what I was saying, you just jumped that gun. I
1: did, I did, because I assumed what you were gonna say. Oh God damn it! What? I hate it when you assume
2: because you always get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we have now we have to... Now
1: we have to... Is, oh, gosh. So, okay. So, Do you want to tell it?
0: I have to tell it. Corey <laughs> okay. Good <had it. laughs> Because... Uh, so there's a phrase that some of you may have heard, which is, uh, never assume because it makes an ass out of you and me. Well, I had never heard this phrase. When Corey said it, and I guess you could probably explain the origin of it if you want, he would always say, never assume because it makes an ass of Matt. I thought that was the actual saying. Thus, I started using it. And one day, a coworker turned to me and just stared, slack-jawed, and went, finally, no, it, it's you and me. You, who is Matt? <laughs> thus, my world was wrong. Yeah,
1: that was something that I was terrible and came up with in high school.
2: I was going to say, right. The origin of that is, Kray and I went to high school Robin together. by quite a bit. Yeah. Corey also once looked at me in the car and said, if I could cut this car in half and keep going without you, I would. <laughs> That's clearly
0: the sign of true friendship.
2: I don't even remember <laughs> what you said that prompted that. I don't either. I've lost it. All I all I remember is that part.
0: <laughs> That's probably the part that would stick with me as well.
1: Oh, I said some pretty dumb stuff in high school, though, so... Ugh. Um... <laughs> Where was I? Oh, okay. Point being is, again, consider the source. And I know Lelian fans are wonderful. I know they're great. But at the same time, for your own mental well-being, to (laughs) keep your anxiety level from going off the charts, you need to take a moment and consider the source. And that doesn't mean disparage the source. And that doesn't mean ignore the source. I'm asking you to take a complete honest stock about what you know about the person making the comment and then decide how much weight you're going to give it. Take control back, Robin. Take control.
2: I think the most important thing is at the end of the day, you have to have some level of trust in your creative instincts. You are here doing this for a reason. You have these fans for a reason. Take the criticism and, and hold it up to you and give it the fair weight and consideration it's due to make sure that you're not staying, you know, not staying complacent, not challenging yourself, but at the end of the day, don't be afraid to set it aside. You are writing and drawing your story. And at the end of the day, no one can tell you how to do that. And if they didn't trust you to be continuing to do it, they wouldn't continue to read your comic.
0: Mm-hmm. The
2: fact that they are means that even with that complaint, they trust you and the story that you're telling.
1: I guess uh, that's an interesting thought. So the, they trust you do you trust you? No. Why not?
0: <sighs> Deep-seated emotional issues. I, yeah, we don't
1: <laughs> have to get into that on the podcast. I just We're That that is ultimately the 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 issue.
0: I mean, you're you're not wrong. I, I I don't know what to tell you. I I I don't trust myself. I don't know why um
1: but, but you trust the fans more uh, their opinion on, on your work more than your own.
0: Well, I mean, when you create a work and you give it to the public, it no longer is a hundred percent your own. I mean, you're still directing it, but at the same time you do see reaction and response and go, Oh, wow. I need to calibrate here. or I need to do more of this or less of that. And it, it, In the process of being consumed, it itself takes on something that is beyond the artist itself.
2: Yeah, except it's on the internet, so you can still take that down and call it good.
0: That's true. Well, well, then you're no longer sharing it for consumption. Right. Specifically, when you are sharing something for consumption.
2: But at the same, and I get that. But at the same time, you are also still the artist. And you get to tell your story. And then afterwards, people with useless English degrees get to talk about the death of the author and decide what it really meant. But in the meantime, you are the one that's ultimately in the driver's seat. Because sure, you're sharing it for consumption. And sure, it takes on a life of its own. But it it, it doesn't take on a life of its own. It takes on a history of its own. Because that future life doesn't exist without you. And so ultimately, you're the one that has to sit down and pull the trigger on what you're going to do. And that requires you to trust in yourself. Because if you didn't trust in yourself at all, ley lines wouldn't exist. It wouldn't wouldn't have had the first pixel of the first picture go up on the internet. You wouldn't have even bought the domain name.
0: And believe me, the fact that any of it does exist is a miracle to me every day. So there must be somewhere buried deep down some level of inner trust that I just haven't met. So I'll just have to but work
2: every, on But every day you... Well, not every day. I don't know how often you upload new pages. But regularly, with great regularity, you update the site. You keep going. It's, it's the advice that uh, Dory gives to Marlin... But it's also the only advice that artists have. Just keep swimming where swimming equals art.
0: (laughs) Just keep arting.
2: Nope. Can't call it that.
0: (laughs) Vetoed. All right. No, no arting. All right.
2: (laughs) Yeah. No arting in public or in
1: front of girls you want to impress.
0: (laughs) I'll keep that in mind. Should I find some girls that I want to impress?
1: Okay, I guess that kind of covers criticism a bit. <laughs> is there anything else we want Like, okay, um, I, this hasn't been an issue for Matt and me so much, but, like, I guess how do we take criticism, Matt? Um, Alcohol and fire. No, I mean, it's...
0: Yes, because that's so much better than my version.
2: <laughs> hey, I, there is a difference between destructive urges and self-destructive urges. <laughs> um... <laughs> that that is true there there yes i think for a long time i struggled with this this was essentially why i was i had two friends in high school because my response to criticism was well f- you i'm smarter than you are um as i've matured as a person i think that uh, like i said it's that process of genuine comparison integration where you're useful and discarding were not useful because the, the great thing about the internet and other people are that there will be no end of other of suggestions of people saying that you should do it one way or another. But at the end of the day, you have to weigh it against what is the story I am telling and don't ignore it. Cause this goes back to the, you know, don't ignore your editors things, but if you give it a fair shake, and you, you really give it the thought that it deserves, and you find that it's not what, how you want to tell your story, you have to set it aside.
0: I think that's part of what makes it so hard, is that advice can even be really good advice, but not fit what you're trying to do or how you're trying to tell a story. I think that's the part that really... That really Catches me if it's an advice where you're sort of like, Yeah, I completely 100% disagree with you, I think you're completely wrong. Like, that's much easier to dismiss than, Yeah, you have a point, I see your point, I agree with your point, but not for what I'm doing, right? And
2: that's it is hard. And there have been times, uh, when I've seen people respond or give story ideas. To things that, not, not necessarily that I've been writing since a total of 130 people read my website last week. but
0: That's about been, as much as reads ley lines regularly, so.
2: Yeah, but I'm pretty sure 75 of those were my dad. Um, <laughs> I, that, that somebody will say something and it's like, that is a beautiful and amazing story. And I am not equipped technically or emotionally to tell it. So please tell that story. But you I go can't. Tell. yeah, and that's it. you have to be able to look at yourself and say, I can't
0: that's hard, Matt. I don't like it. <laughs> well, I guess I mean, you're right, but I don't like it
1: i I guess what I'm hearing from from Matt's perspective it's uh you have to be able to set those boundaries, not just with uh. The criticism that you receive from your readers but also from yourself yes so I and I know for a fact that setting boundaries takes practice so that's so weird though I guess being a writer being a, cr- a creative person it, it's, it's amazing to me how so many of us are so terrible at setting boundaries but ultimately that's like the key skill not just to being human but specifically being an artist
2: well, I think that and and I've said it before and I'm afraid that it uh, that it comes off as um as flip when I say it, but honestly, I think if we were completely whole people, we would not be artists. Because there is something In us that needs to put something into the world to be consumed and that same thing that makes us feel like everything we put out into the world is exactly shit and that that dichotomy is what makes artists and what makes art and without it without that desire and also that self-flagellation we would come home we would watch reality TV. We would make love to our terrible wives, and we would go to bed.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I guess w- what you were saying earlier is—is is there's that fundamental piece of every artist that believes that their work is no good, and I guess any negative criticism is automatically going to be a validation of that piece of yourself.
2: Right. We are prone to say we are prone to accepting the negative immediately. And the positive only at great length.
1: Yeah.
0: But at the same time, not ignoring the negative means uh, ignoring advancement.
1: Because right. without and acknowledging
0: I'm... that there's something wrong, you can't move forward.
1: If the negative is legitimate. If it's a good negative. If it's a negative that you actually need to improve on. And... They aren't always that. Like, you just said that sometimes it's, yes, that is a valid criticism. It is also not what I'm doing. Or not what I'm capable of doing. Or or not what I'm intending to achieve with this Or not project. what I'm
2: interested in doing. Yeah.
1: So, from that perspective, you know, you, you you wouldn't be growing in the right way if you took that criticism as gospel.
0: No, I mean, those are all fair points. You're right. Why is life so hard? That's what I really want to know. Next podcast, why life is so goddamn hard.
2: <laughs> because if it was easy, it would be boring.
0: I could do with more boredom in my life.
1: Oh, You know, I think uh,
2: the, one of the lines that I got that I, I think landed me this job in this interview was I was talking about coming up with reasonable accommodations and balancing that versus what the department needs and how much money the department has. And uh, the, the line that I said was, and it's hard, but if it was easy, they wouldn't need attorneys. And, and life, is, life is like that. If it was easy, it wouldn't need humans. If, if life were easy and simple, we wouldn't be people. We wouldn't have art. We wouldn't have dreams. We would be tree frogs. Because all tree frogs care about is Flies avoiding things that eat tree frogs and sweet tree frog loving. <laughs> I knew that was coming. You did. The
0: life of a tree frog. You set that up. And
1: it, yeah. You
2: gotta say a couple serious things and then hit him with a joke.
0: Yeah. Whatever you but, say, Jess Whedon.
2: Exactly. Um but seriously, it's these things are hard because it is the difficulty that makes us do them. It's Overcoming these emotional things is our version of uh, Hillary looking at Everest and saying, "I bet I can make my Sherpa do most of the work of climbing."
1: That. <laughs> I, I guess the other thing is, uh, and I was just thinking about this when you were telling, when you were talking about this, is there's that Chinese curse, uh, "May you live in interesting times," because of course interesting times are the ones that have the most adversity, but. I, like, while that is a meant as a curse, and it is kind of clever and backhanded, at the same time, boring people live in boring times, and nobody remembers them. But more importantly than that, nobody learned anything during those times. Nobody learned anything from a boring person. And I guess if, if the whole point of writing is, and, and t- storytelling is to kind of pass on these lessons and, and say what we want to say about the human condition well bring bring on the interestingness then because because a a boring life would make me a really boring writer,
0: well, clearly, I have plenty to say about doubt, so I guess that'll keep me busy for a long time there
1: you go so so well, even if you wish this, for more normalcy at this point, I
2: think that it's 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 appropriate to quote Walt Whitman via Robin Williams. That you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse.
1: Well read
0: off of your computer screen. Yup! Oh, <laughs> uh, I was choosing to imagine that instead it was just Matt had that. I couldn't, no, I uh, have, I have some
2: lines of poetry memorized. Uh, to follow knowledge like a sinking star beyond the utmost bound of human thought.
1: Hmm. Snazzy.
0: That one's a memorized
2: one. That's a memorized one, because Ulysses um, by Alfred Tennyson is my favorite poem.
0: I don't know if I have a favorite poem.
2: I'm an English major. I am Uh, required to have a favorite poem. It's
0: mandatory. Welcome to English Last question
2: on the final. What is your
0: favorite poem?
2: I encourage everyone to come up with a favorite poem, because it'll mean you're reading poetry. And there's lots of fun poetry you can read. Um, like there's a the, I think the current national poet laureate, although I may be misstating that position, but there's a um, a very popular modern poet named Billy Collins, who um, no, he was poet laureate from 2001 to 2003. Who one of his poems is essentially why no one else should write poetry because I need to make these sales. <laughs> So uh. I encourage everyone to find uh, a favorite poem.
1: Poems about real life are the best. Perhaps by Billy Collins.
2: <laughs> for the prompt tonight, I think that... I My idea was that rather than doing it as we had been doing it, I was going to mix it up a little bit.
1: Okay. Ooh.
2: So the prompt for tonight is, you must start with the line or work in the line prominently into your piece. Everything changed the night I found his body.
0: Want to join us in testing your writing skills? Just answer the prompt using 10-15 to 15 minutes as a goal, and send the results to info at mocopress.com. We'll share the results on the air. Or leave a comment on www.mocopress.com. We can't wait to see what you come up with. We were perfect for each other. Everyone said so. Love at first sight, a match made in heaven, two halves of one whole. And so quickly did we fall in love that it could be nothing short of destiny. He was, without exception, utterly perfect for me. Our future was looking bright. White wedding dresses and picket fences and secretly jealous neighbors would be mine. I set the date for June to celebrate our three-month anniversary. Everything changed the night I found his body. Once the shock faded, I realized that the corpse I'd found was old, well into the stages of decay. My hand strayed absolutely to my mouth. Whose lips had I kissed this morning? Whose voice did I hear on the phone this afternoon? My cell phone rang, and I looked down at it with a sense of heavy inevitability. It was him. His corpse was there before me, and yet the phone number in my hand, his picture on the screen, his name below the number, it was him. Everything changed the night I found his body, because I realized I didn't care. Hello? Hey, sweetheart. I was wondering, what do you think about Ryan as a best man? Whatever you want, dear. I finished the call, closed the door on the room with the corpse, and walked away. We were perfect for each other.
1: Vampire murder for the win. (laughs) Wow, that's yeah. All right. Yeah, macabre. Awesome. All right. Ready? Mm -hmm. Unless you want to discuss yours a little more?
0: Nope, that was not unless you guys want to.
1: Nope. No, it was good. I liked it. Good twist.
0: Well, I mean, it just occurred to me that if you'd found Mr. Wright and then discovered that there was some dead guy that might not have been Mr. Wright, would it necessarily be a bad thing if you chose the guy that you knew was perfect, was over Mr. Wright <laughs> happens to be dead? I mean, he's Mr. Wright just because there's a body that looks like him and it could be some supernatural weirdness. I mean,
1: you could do worse than to have an actual skeleton in your closet.
0: Yeah, I mean, how often does true love come around, you know?
1: Right. Okay, okay. Here we go. I have always been an unlucky man, but everything changed the night I found his body. It wasn't the body itself that was special, of course. Bodies are a pence a pound in my business. After all, everyone has one. Men like me have always had a keen interest in the mortal coils of others since the days of Herophilus. The great institutions of man have always needed a corpse or two to teach the would-be doctors the difference between a liver and a lung. When the death- row sits empty, and the hangman's shoes boots uh, excuse me, the hangman's boots start to wear out, they turn to men like me. In short, I am an employee of the university. I am a grave robber, pillar of the community I know. As I was saying, the body itself wasn't anything special, it was whom it belonged to. He was short, graying, dark jacket that looked like coal in the night. It was Harvey, the man I hated more than any other in this life. He had been a mean little boy, bullying, son to the mill owner, and I had watched my father work himself to death at that mill, while Harvey brought sweets to class for everyone but me. He had grown into a mean little man. He had inherited that mill and was wealthy enough to lord it over everyone else, but not so wealthy that he didn't have to associate with men like me. When he got drunk, he liked to gamble, and I always tried to fleece him, get back at the hateful little man for all of the indignities he had heaped upon me. But I have always been an unlucky man. I owed him a great deal of money. Yet here, my luck seemed to have finally turned. There he was, limp on a bench just outside the graveyard. A large, empty bottle spoke of a night of relaxing while I had been hard at work, a bloody spot on his head where it had collided with the bench's iron armrest. I dared to dream. Would Mrs. Harvey really care if he never came home? Would one of the medical students recognize him? Surely not. The man was a womanizer, and I'm certain his home would have been happier without him, and I could always rough his face up a little. If nothing else, I would get paid for two bodies tonight instead of one. There was only one problem. I watched silently as he took a shallow, wheezing breath and then snored softly into his collar. Everything changed the night I found his body. It was a shame he was still using it.
2: I liked both of those. I thought that they went interesting places with it. You both did go with the macabre, but that's okay. It was a macabre setup. I was wondering if anybody was going to go for something uh, sexy with it.
1: <laughs> I I um I was telling Robin this earlier. I, I really was going for something more comedic at first.
0: We both were, actually.
1: Yeah. Where um, my, my first thought was, how can I make this into a pun? Because there's a body of water and wine has a body. And like, is there a way I can twist this? And that was what my research was. And the answer was no. <laughs> Okay,
2: so what was your research? Because I'm, I'm curious now.
1: Okay, so the first thing I did was I typed body into Wikipedia. And it okay. gave me a couple different things, but nothing that I really wanted to... Nothing that I could really use to twist as a pun. So from there, I just went ahead and clicked on cadaver, which was the first entry. And from that, um, I discovered... Uh, like like The article goes really into the use of cadavers in medical history, uh, including Herophilus, the first... Uh, the Father of Anatomy, and The Art of grave digging, And that's what gave me my inspiration for this particular... Gotcha. Thing.
2: I wondered what that name was, because it was not one I recognized.
1: Yes. He is the first person uh, thought to have dissected a human body. Nice.
0: I thought it was just Corey's trend of continuing to interject Greek names.
1: Just knowing them offhand? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't know this one offhand.
2: What no, I, I figured one? it was something. And I'm glad that I was right. I just mm-hmm. did not recognize what that something was.
1: Sure, it's yeah, not super well known. But yeah, that's that's where I was going with it. That's that's how I got to where I was going.
0: Just need to see the progression there, huh. from one, one thought
1: to another. How about you, Robin? How, how did the process work for you?
0: Um, for me, it was just the idea of a double body, that that there would be the living and the dead, and the aspect of, of that contrast and the decisions that would present themselves um, was what I found interesting. So that's once I had that idea, I just had to figure out the order in which to introduce different concepts and how much time to spend on each one.
1: So that's what you meant by order of operations.
0: Yeah, when I was talking about, I had to figure out the order of operations. Um, I just needed to figure out, you know, gotcha. Establish having needing to establish. The relationship to establish the body relative to the person Hmm. that she knows and then the decision and then tying it up it actually was a lot shorter than i was anticipating because it didn't in the end need need much to establish the the crux of the choice
1: inspirations what's inspiring us this week
2: well, Robin, you said you had one set aside specifically. Yeah,
0: I got in response to our last podcast um, where I had expressed some of that concern about trying to write people of a different gender or race um, and worrying that I wouldn't represent people well. Um, uh, Jennifer Zyron Smith sent me, who is, by the way, one of the coolest names ever, Um <laughs> She does uh, LaSalle's Legacy, which is an online comic. Um, she sent me a link uh, that was inspired by that. By uh, It's a transcript of a speech by Jean Luan Yang, Hopefully, I'm saying that correctly, um, which I thought was really interesting, and I thought that I would read it to you guys and share Yeah. Um, with you. It was, it was a comic speech at the 2014 National Book Festival Gala. Good evening. Thank you Library of Congress and National Book Festival for inviting me to share the stage with such esteemed authors, and to speak with all of you. I am deeply grateful for this honor. As a comic book, I am a comic book guy, so tonight I'd like to talk about another comic book guy, Dwayne McDuffie. Dwayne McDuffie was one of my favorite writers. When I was growing up, he was one of the few African Americans working in American comics. Dwayne worked primarily with the superhero genre. He got his start at Marvel Comics, but eventually worked for almost every comic book publisher out there. He even branched out into television and wrote for popular cartoon series like Justice League and Ben 10. Dwayne McDuffie is no longer with us, unfortunately. He passed away in 2011 at the age of 49, but within comics, his influence is still deeply felt. I was lucky enough to have met him once, but a year before his death, we were on a panel together at Comic-Con. I had the opportunity to shake his hand and tell him how much his work meant to me. In a column Dwayne wrote in 1999, he talked about his love of the Black Panther, a Marvel Comics character. The Black Panther's secret alias is T'Challa, the king of the fictional African nation of Wakanda. He has super senses, super strength, and super agility. He's an Avenger, although he hasn't made it into the movies. The Black Panther wasn't created by African American cartoonists. He was created in July of 1966 by two Jewish Americans, Stan Lee who was born Stanley Lieber, and Jack Kirby, who was born Jacob Kurtzberg. By modern standards, the Black Panther is not a flawless example of black superheroes. In their first draft of the character, Lee and Kirby called him the Coal Tiger and gave him goofy yellow and black costumes. Even in his final form, his superhero alias included the word black. This is true of many early African and African-American superheroes, as if what makes them remarkable is neither their superpowers nor their heroism, but their ethnicity. Most problematic, though, was that Marvel made their most prominent black superhero the star of a series called Jungle Action. All of these flaws were lost on Dwayne McDuffie when he first encountered the Black Panther in 1973 at the age of 11. What struck him was that the character's commanding sense of dignity. The Black Panther wasn't anyone's sidekick. He wasn't an angry thug. He wasn't a victim. He was his own hero, his own man. As Dwayne describes it, in the space of 15 pages, black people moved from invisible to inevitable. Dwayne's love of the Black Panther eventually blossomed into a love of comics in general. Dwayne was a smart guy with a lot of options in life. He'd earned a master's degree in physics, but he chose to write comics as his career. I would argue that without the Black Panther, this flawed black character created by a writer and artist who were not black, there would be no Dwayne McDuffie in the comic book writer.
2: I like that a lot. Yeah.
0: It keeps going. Sorry, it's a little bit long, but...
1: No, um, keep going, please. Yeah,
0: please, keep going. Uh, Dwayne wasn't just a writer. He was also a businessman. In the early 90s, he teamed with a group of writers and artists to found Milestone Media, the most prominent minority-owned comic book company that has ever existed. The Milestone universe has since been folded into DC Comics, so these days characters like Static Shock and Icon, characters Dwayne co-created, fight crime alongside Superman and Batman. In the early 90s, I was finishing up my adolescence. I visited my local comic book store on a weekly basis, and one week I found a book on the stands called Zombie, spelled X-O-M-B-I, published by Milestone Media. Zombie is a scientist who becomes a s- superhero after he was injected with nanotechnology. He allied himself with a secret order of superpowered nuns. One sister was known as none of the above, another none of the less. Together they protected the world from all kinds of supernatural threats. Zombie was inventive and fun, but it stood out to me because he was an Asian-American male, carrying his own monthly title. And even more notable, he didn't know Kung Fu. Zombie wasn't created by Asian-Americans. His writer was white and his artist was black, but he did make Asian-Americans a little less invisible. We in the book community are in the middle of a sustained conversation about diversity. We talk about our needs for diverse books with diverse characters written by diverse writers. I wholeheartedly agree. But I have unnoticed an undercurrent of fear in many of our discussions. We're afraid of writing characters different from ourselves because we're afraid of getting it wrong. We're afraid of what the internet might say. This fear can be a good thing if it drives us to do our homework, to be meticulous in our cultural research. But this fear crosses the line when we become so intimidated that we quietly make choices against stepping out of our own identities. After all, our job as writers is to step out of ourselves, and to encourage our readers to do the same. I told you the story of Dwayne McDuffie to encourage all of us to be generous with ourselves and with one another. The Black Panther, despite his flaws, was able to inspire a young African-American reader to become a writer. We have to allow ourselves the freedom to make mistakes, including cultural mistakes, in our first drafts. I believe it's okay to get cultural details wrong in your first draft. It's okay if stereotypes emerge. It just means that your experience is limited and that you are human. Just make sure you iron them out before the final draft. Make sure you do your homework. Make sure your early readers include people who are part of the culture you're writing about. Make sure your editor has the insider knowledge to help you out. If they don't, consider hiring a freelance editor who does. Also, it's okay if stereotypes emerge in the first drafts of your colleagues. Correct them, definitely correct them, but do so in a spirit of generosity. Remember how soul-wrenching the act of writing is, how much courage it took for that writer to put words down on a page. And let's say you do your best, you put in all the effort you can, but then when your book comes out the internet gets angry. You slowly realize that for once the internet might be right. You made a cultural misstep. If this happens, take comfort in the fact that even flawed characters can inspire. Apologize if necessary, resolve to do better, and move on. Let your fear drive you to do your homework, but no matter what, don't ever let your fear stop you. That's amazing.
1: I
2: like That's it. great. That's, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: So many it, and, thanks to Jen of dot com. What? And that, that, I mean,
2: that resonates a lot with me personally because a lot of my characters, um, are not, they don't share my ethnicity, they don't share my religion. I'm specifically thinking of in Border, um, while Walter is white, um, his daughters are, uh, half Filipino. And so that's obviously not a heritage that, I share, um, and so I do worry about getting it right, making sure that it is meaningful. What what I am portraying is meaningful to that culture and not disrespectful. And to hear that was is very reassuring. That I don't know in that universality of every every lots of creators have gone through it, lots of people worry about it, and that there is value in an attempt, even an imperfect one. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Because I think that that does get lost in the world right now. And the thing that actually comes to mind for me in it getting somewhat lost and an interesting discussion coming from it is, as part of the SCA, I am peripherally aware of a lot of Interesting conversations include and and interest groups, including uh, belly dance. And there's been a big controversy in the belly dance community over to what extent um, it's cultural appropriation versus it's you know everybody is allowed to dance versus it's honoring the roots because there was a. Widely read, widely spread article circulated that was essentially premised on as a uh, written as a Arab American woman, here is why I hate white belly dancers
0: mm-hmm.
2: and then watching the reactions to that come about. So that's really, really interesting, and thank you for sharing that,
1: oh, yeah, I agree. Um, what struck me about it is that it's very much the... Uh, it answers the question you brought tonight. Which is the, you know... Um, at least at least the piece with the, the uh, being critical. Uh, specifically the, you know... If you have to apologize, apologize. And frankly, I don't think you have anything to apologize for. But, resolve to do better next time if you feel like you've erred, and move on. And I think that uh, being a good writer always is going to have that piece of... Uh, piece of self advice where you have to take that stock of the moment and then write the next thing. So So inspires yeah, me I, to be I found
0: it very uh comforting and I yeah. thought that I would pass that on. Thank so, you. Thank you again, Jen.
1: Well, that blows my inspiration clean out of the water, <laughs> yeah, so no I'm going to go ahead and Yeah, no so I you... should
0: not have gone first. Well, no.
1: Said. Um I am I'm amending my inspiration to be that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm inspired by you sharing that with us, so yeah. All right. So, what else is your inspiration? Oh, gosh.
0: That's not gonna let you off. The oh, book. did <laughs> did I share
1: the story of my dad's finger last time, or is that new? What? That must be new. All right. Uh, uh, a week ago. Well,
0: I'm really curious as how you're going to tie this into inspiration. So go. Uh, oh, right. you'll you'll
1: hear it. You'll 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 understand. Um. So, uh, my dad is re. Uh, he's putting hardwood floors in in the old house, and uh, so he decided he's going to do it himself. So he set up his compound miter saw in the garage where he. Uh, uh, it can can do all the work himself like like a real manly man. and a week ago he cut off the tip of his left fing- index finger with the compound miter saw, split the uh, fingernail right down the middle and took about a millimeter of his bone off. Um, yeah, it was horrible. Um, but uh, so so I got an email from my mom saying, "Oh so Your dad's, dad's cut off hospital. his finger yeah. uh, we're going to the ER. I have pictures.
0: Also, she finished this email with, by the way, when are you coming over to get birthday presents from your Aunt Brenda? That's like, just, right. Just casually tossed in there. You know, oh, we're, we're in the uh, Your dad's chopped off his finger. I when have attached by? pictures. And when are you coming over for presents?
1: Mm-hmm. So, um... Anyway, so I open up the pictures, and the first one is my dad sitting on the couch at home. The dog is next to him, and my dad is wearing the cone of shame that you put on dogs when they have an injury, <laughs> and they're not allowed to lick their wounds. And he's looking kind of like Mopey, and the dog is looking ashamed on his behalf. And it, it's adorable. And uh, my mom said, yeah, he came up with the idea to take that picture while we were in the ER. And I was like, sure, I'll take the picture <laughs> as long as we can do that, as, as long as you're up for it. So I guess I'm inspired right now by uh, even even those dark, even painful and shameful moments even. You can you can find a bit of humor if you try. So I'm inspired by my, my father's example of uh, bringing a little bit of lighthearted humor to maiming.
0: <laughs> to maiming.
1: That is my inspiration for this week.
2: All right, I am trying very hard to come up with an inspiration this week that is not related to me, because I do that way too much.
0: You're just so gosh darn inspirational, Matt, that you cannot help but even inspire yourself.
1: That's right.
2: Well, since I am sitting here trying to teach myself how to weave, I'm not feeling very... uh, competent right now despite the good news earlier today, which is not what I'm going to be inspired by because, again, that would be me being inspired by me. Um, I think, honestly, the things that have really inspired me this week are kind of two things, both fairly recently. Uh, first, as a student of history, there was an interesting article that went around the internet very popularly claiming that new studies showed that up to half of Viking warriors were actually women.
1: Yeah, I saw yeah, that. Yeah, I saw that.
2: Well, all right. The problem is that's not true. What it revealed is that the methodology by which we have traditionally dated um, or b- traditionally tried to gender identify uh you know, found corpses may have flaws in that we traditionally have done it by what is around the bodies. Right. So, oh this, if there's a you sword,
1: know, it's a guy.
2: Right. Here's a sword, it's a guy. Here's a brooch a uh, brooch. I always a say brooch. that word wrong. Um let me brooch the subject. <laughs> um it's a chick. So and then and they said, well, Let's look at the bones and try to find out if that's actually true. And they found out that a significantly larger portion of Viking settlers and traders may have been women more so than previously thought. And so while it is still, oh, well, we're looking at this ancient culture, there may be more diversity and roles for women in it than we thought. That's still true. It's just, you know, not true to the extent that the internet decided to explode with. But I'm still choosing to see it as inspirational because, one, we are finding more examples of uh, women in history than we expected. And two, we are reminding ourselves that our pursuit of good Historical dating practices is ongoing, and that we must never let ourselves be complacent.
0: Yeah, and I yes. saw. Oh, go ahead.
2: Oh no, I was I was gonna move on to my next one. Oh, but I saw please. an
0: interesting additional conversation that someone had added to that, talking about how, um, even though, as you said, that it, it it's not actually concluding that okay, you know, half of the people were were actually you know, women warriors, and they were fighters. What it basically concluded is we can't make any of those kind of conclusions, um, that, that children have been found buried with swords. Right. We don't know the actual practices that went around bur- burials. Were they buried with what was on hand? Were they buried with something that was intended to serve a purpose in an afterlife? Um, that there's actually so much uncertainty that, the biggest thing to keep in mind is that um, we cannot assign any type of gendered presumption to historical discovery. And I thought that was a really interesting takeaway to have from it is that we just, we simply don't know. We don't know if as many people were warriors as we assume or settlers or bakers or who knows what they were. Um, And that it's better to keep an open mind about the discoveries that are made then try and make some sort of extrapolation based on preconceived notions uh, from our own particular uh, opinions about who is suited for what. And I thought that was an interesting discussion.
1: Yeah, the the gender thing's really big right now. It seems to have exploded. I mean, la- just last week we were talking about Anita Sarkeesian and Robin and I took a gander at the video that led to that uh, her her being uh scared out of her own home. We we took a look at that this weekend and um uh for I, I, I'm a tabletop wargamer. I play uh, War Machine and Hordes and the big one of the big things discussions on their community right now is uh when you have gigantic uh monsters fighting each other, how are they gendered? <laughs> Which is bizarre, but it seems to be popping up in everything that I'm uh interested in right now and I think that's really fascinating.
2: Uh, The other thing that was inspirational this week was something as simple as there's a YouTube video floating around. Teenagers react to the NES. Okay. And it's basically showing, um, uh, you know, 15 to 19-year-olds in original NES and just seeing how they react to it without first knowing what it is or how to use it. Or And that's inspirational because it means I am moving into the category I feel like I was born to move into, that of the grumpy old man complaining <laughs> about these teenagers who don't know their history.
1: Curmudgeon is the word I was going to use.
2: Yes. I am moving into the role that I was destined to play, that of the curmudgeon.
0: You and I have been old people for a very long time.
1: <laughs> yes. I guess I am the youngest of, of all of you. All of us. Yes. So. Eh. With young it at Hearts. explains heart too. your upbeat spirit. That's right, because only young people are allowed to be optimists.
0: Yep. <laughs> yep.
1: All right. Uh, Matt, where, where can we find more of your work?
2: You can find more of my work by the now viewed by upwards of 133 people web fiction, Border Kansas, at www.border-ks.com.
0: I just want to keep hearing the stats go up. Like yeah. every every you check back in, you're like, just remembering back in the old good old days when only a 100 people came by.
2: Hey, I'll be as thrilled as anyone if someday I'm introducing this as the occasionally read by 47,000 people, Border, <laughs> Um,
0: My work is at leylinescomic.com, and you can find more about the business side of things that Corey and I do at mocopress.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast please uh, consider becoming a backer at patreon.com slash moco press. music for this episode was created by reasoner you can find more of his work at reasoner.newgrounds.com